Before we get to today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Veracross. With a single record database and the strongest API in the industry, Veracross is the leading SIS provider for private and independent schools, and it's now available in Australia. Support us by supporting them, so visit veracross.com backslash edleaders to learn more. Now let's get to today's show. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education, and where we believe that with better leaders, we make better schools. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out every two weeks by Ed Leaders. What should someone expect, Matt, if they sign up for the email? You can expect things that are unexpected. You can expect to see uh, lots of tidbits about the last one, certainly around technology. And uh, I love uh, the jobs to be done theory, which we talk about. You can see different things and things that are really meaningful uh, to leaders, but also things that um, you don't often uh, see uh, in your feed. So uh, get out there and uh, sign up. I love when I put you on the spot early, Matt. You can sign up to the newsletter at edleaders.com.au. Now, on to today's guest, Vaughan Cleary. Vaughan is the Senior Deputy Principal at Assumption College, a position he's held since 2016 and where he's been one of the key driving forces behind my map. And for those of you who will remember episode 44 with Peter Hutton, Peter describes my map as one of the programs he's best seen in the world. Not a bad rap, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Prior to this, he was the head of health and PE at Marceline College, a position he held for 15 years. So without further ado, let's get to it. Vaughan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke, and uh, great to be here. So how are you, Matt? Yeah, fantastic. Welcome. All right, now Vaughan, we love to uh, start the show with a bit of uh, a bit of a bit about your story and your journey, your professional journey, your personal journey in education, uh, from your kind of schooling experiences right through to your first job and kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Uh... This year is my 30th year in education, so I've been uh, very lucky that uh, I've had a great career at, at two schools. Um, you mentioned Marceline College in, in Bulleen. Uh, that was my first job straight out of, out of university. Worked there for 23 years. They eventually kicked me out of there, and I was lucky enough to get a job at Assumption College eight years ago uh, as uh, deputy principal. My own schooling was at a, a similar school in Victoria called Loyola College, a, a co-ed Catholic school, a low-fee paying school. And my university was an RMIT where I did human movement and exercise science. Parallel with my work in education, I've had a long sort of involvement in Australian rules football and have either played or coached every year, you know, since about uh, age five or six. So part of my leadership work has been around the football and uh, education. And any, I guess, in that, in your sort of career across your schooling, but also in your, in your footy work, was there a moment in time where you've gone, I absolutely want to lead. That's the next thing for me. I know that's what I'm supposed to be. Matt, not really. I, I suppose being involved in sport all my life, you know, leadership has been something that's sort of just been there and, and nothing that I've honestly pursued. I think, you know, playing, you know, when I was younger, when it was my turn to be captain, uh, it's just seemed to be a natural evolution of where I, you know, was. And I think the same in my my teaching career. That being said, I think at Marcelin when I first started that I was probably a little bit naive and put my hand up for leadership roles that no one else wanted. A good example was I think I was year eight coordinator when I was 23, you know, after 240, you know, 13, 14 year old boys. And I don't think I really knew what I was getting myself into. But cutting my teeth on such big jobs early on uh, has meant that the world of learning and teaching has been quite easy for me. And, you know, lower stakes in, in the fact that you're not dealing with those high you know, highly intense and emotional issues every day and, you know, why I really do love the learning and teaching curriculum side of education. Now, we love to dive into like how people stood out when they went for jobs. Now, you kind of joked about being kicked out of Marcelin. I uh, I find that hard to believe. But do you think uh, when you went for the job at Assumption uh, that there were certain things that stood out and why you were the one that was picked? I think... To be fair, it was a little bit of nepotism. Um, Kate Fogarty, who's the wonderful principal at Assumption College, she worked with me at Marcelin. I think Kate was year seven coordinator. At the same time, I was year eight coordinator. And it's another Mara school, 60 k's away. So there's not many Mara schools in Victoria. And it seemed natural that if I was going to go somewhere, it would be in a, a similar type of school environment. And I was just finishing my Master's of Educational Leadership. And I think 
in fairness, I wouldn't have got the job if I was able to, you know, talk the talk in the interview. I mean, I think Kate at the same stage had finished her master's at, at Melbourne Uni and I think we were reading similar things and interested in uh, similar academics and uh, I think a, a combination of the fact that Kate trusted me and I trusted her and, you know, we were, I suppose, similar part of our journey, you know, professionally. Uh, I think that certainly helped me get the job. And Vaughan, along the way, you sort of talked about sort of your connection with Kate, but I wonder if there are um, sort of other leaders across the journey that you look to and you went, you know what, that's that's something that I want to model my leadership on. So, you know, some, some, maybe some role models that have been part of your formation, if you like. Matt, uh, I've been really lucky. I've had four wonderful principals. You know, a gentleman called Paul Herrick was my first principal who was actually a school teacher at Loyola. And again, a a little bit of nepotism. I was lucky to get a job, you know, when I was uh, 21 um, as a young teacher, uh, young graduate. Uh, from there, had some great role models. Mark Merry, who's now the principal at Yarra Valley Grammar. Uh, Mark Murphy, who's at Whitefriars. And I, my deputy at, at Marcelin is a gentleman called Peter Hulahan, who's at De La Salle in Victoria. So they've all been very successful principals. And I learned a little bit from each of them. But one of the things I probably have learned from all of them is that I think they naturally sort of grew into the role and thinking that, you know, I wasn't going to wait for anyone to, you know, come in and magically, you know, push me or to inspire me to become a leader. I just, I think, looked at what was the best out of them and uh, tried to emulate that in my own leadership. And I'm also... Nice. And you kind of meant... Oh, no. You go, Matt. No, you go. You go, buddy. No, for, you go. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, one thing uh, around sort of the, the, the people that you're working with, uh, etc. One of the things that we come across, you know, and people will sort of talk about is that, you know, people that come from the sports background often make leadership roles, both pastorally, probably more so than, than, than academic. Do you have a view or, or a, an idea of why so many sort of, sort of leaders around the country have that kind of pathway, particularly from sporting to leadership in schools? Yeah, I think that if you look at the skills that a lot of health and PE teachers have, you know, the what we call the, you know, contemporary 21st century skills that we're wanting our young people to have. So, you know, uh, health and PE teachers, the same as art and music and drama and wood teachers, they're constantly working with and co-creating content with their their students. They're collaborative. Uh, they need to be great communicators. They need to be able to provide great feedback uh, on the spot. They're adaptable. Um, and I think that obviously the world of sport to a lot of phys editors are involved in that. And there seems to be obviously you know, very much leadership roles in sport where all of those things are integral for success. So I think it's, um, you know, quite natural for young young people to be involved in those sorts of activities to not to be fearful of going for roles. You know, I know there's some, you know, some staff I work with who have perhaps never had the opportunities to, to, to be in leadership roles or to be in really big teams and uh, they're sometimes quite daunted to put their hand up for roles. So that's nothing that uh, I think phys ed is afraid of. So I think it's a little bit of confidence. I think it's uh, obviously experience with leadership when they're younger and natural love of, of movement and, and being around people. And I think they're all really good ingredients for, you know, any successful leader in any industry. And, and just to add depth to that, you obviously talked about your involvement in football and in particular coaching. What sort of impact has that had in terms of kind of leading people, motivating people, you know, that you've transferred either direction from, from football and, and coaching into your leadership life or vice versa from what you've learned as a leader in a school back into your coaching? Yeah, look, I've been really lucky with my involvement in, in Aussie Rules football. I've, I've, played and coached and recruited at, at you know, uh, junior level right through to AFL. And I'm a big believer that football's a great portal for young people to grow up and be successful in at whatever role that they want to end up doing and whatever level. And work with, you know, young people that have ended up being some of the most successful AFL players. Uh, I've worked with people that are, are still playing football at a local level after 25 years of giving to, to local communities. So I think uh, education is very similar. I think that, you know, being a leader, you know, we know pathways, you know, to the future are going to be varied for, for each individual. And we've all got our own special needs, interests and talents. And, you know, I think someone can be just as successful, you know, giving to a, a local football club you know, for 25 years and being a volunteer than being a professional athlete. So I think having that mindset in education, you know, is so vital. And you know, I've been lucky to be able to, you know, be involved in an industry that's, you know, popular and, um, you know, particularly with the young uh, men that I've worked with at, at Marcelin, you know, Assumption is certainly a co-ed school and, you know, we're both young, you know, boys and girls going to obviously AFL careers in those sports. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a really deep, rich part of my life. 
So, Vaughan, we've been uh, we've been watching uh, Assumption very closely here, uh, where we are on the West Coast, and you're doing some amazing things, particularly in the in the learning and teaching space. And MyMap program has been something that's sort of central to the college, and something that you've been part of. For those people who don't know what MyMap is, could you sort of give us a, an outline of, of the program? Yeah, sure, Matt. So, MyMap, I'd like you to imagine a different way of, of doing learning and teaching, of doing school, a different paradigm. So what we have at Assumption, we have a wonderful four-year MyMap program. The first year is basically the, the first semester is a program that we call Quare. A Quare is part of our school motto and it means to seek. So our students come in from primary school and they spend a semester seeking and the theme in semester one inquiry is uh, a belonging. So everything that the students do as part of their curriculum in semester one uh, is revolved around the theme of belonging. And it basically stemmed from the fact that our data a number of years ago had indicated that for whatever reason, some of our young people didn't feel a sense of belonging with the school. And it was perhaps the fact that we have over 50 feeder uh, schools uh, where our students come from. We're a rural school. So we have a lot of our students coming in who are potentially the only student you know, from the primary school. So we felt that we needed to come up with a program that was incredibly, you know, different and it's been hugely successful. So with the Quare program, the students engage in about 16 different subjects. They're all mapped to the Victorian curriculum. So they'll do their, you know, standard English, maths, science, etc. But they also will, you know, you know do a, a taster of French, uh, wood, food, textiles, metal, drama, dance, etc. So our aim is to expose the students to as many different uh, areas of the curriculum as, as possible uh, in that six months. We've basically told our staff to, you know, down assessment tools. So the experience needs to be around enjoyment and love of learning. So, you know, there's very little sort of homework or home learning. It's all, you know, hands-on enjoying their first semester at, at Assumption. And what we're asking the students to do is basically showcase their own learning at the end of the semester to a, a panel of caring adults, and that involves their parents and partial leader and house leader. Uh, so basically, the student has got uh, total control of what they are being, you know, they're showcasing, and um, it's, it's a portfolio rather than, you know, any formal assessments. So what we found is it's been a wonderful way for our young people to start their transition into secondary school. The teachers love it because they don't have to uh, correct 200, you know, wood projects or, you know, watch 200 dance performances and assess each one. So the the staff have really embraced it as well. But from the middle of year seven, right through to the senior VCE years, the students go into, you know, the MyMap proper. And MyMap stands for Mastery, Autonomy and Purpose. And what the idea is, it is a curriculum based around promotion of motivation and engagement for our young people. And I mentioned the data before in regards to uh, a low sense of belonging. The narrative at Assumption when Kate and I started was that our students were poorly motivated, disengaged, and, you know, I was bluntly told, I don't know why you bother Vaughan, you know, our kids are not really interested in academic learning. And I felt incredibly sorry for the students. And I don't disbelieve the notion that they were poorly motivated because I think a lot of them were. But my response and Kate's response is that we were the professionals in the room and it's our responsibility as adults to, to change the narrative and to change the structure. So we went and did a lot of research around motivation and self-determination theory is probably the most universal theory of, of motivation used today, uh, Dietschy and Ryan. And at the time, there was a, a gentleman called Dan Pink who wrote a book called Drive and he popularized self-determination theory and um, he had a very famous YouTube video that he talked about mastery, autonomy and purpose being the three drivers of of, of motivation, you know, in, in people. So we borrowed the MAP acronym and it not only was great for, obviously, for that purpose, it was also being able to be used as a metaphor for journey. So and my MAP program was really designed around mastery, autonomy and purpose. And we use those principles to build our entire curriculum. So our students basically have got total choice in their subjects from the middle of year seven, which is very unusual uh, from a uh, secondary school perspective. So the students need to select an English of their choice. They need to select uh, an RE of their choice and they do mass pathway. But on top of that, there's no caveats on uh, or restrictions on what the students have to do. Uh, again, another uh, hugely a significant difference with, with assumption. And our students therefore delve into subjects mapped to the um, eight areas of the uh, Victorian curriculum and RE. And between the middle of year seven right through to year 10, they have approximately 25 different subject choices. And 
the students basically have over 260 different subjects to pick from. It's a huge suite of, of subjects. Uh, there's a lot of choice. And the mastery component comes in in, in, in a couple of uh, ways. The first thing is that the students can delve into multiple areas of study within the one learning domain. For example, we'll have seven or eight different biology options. So the students can do forensic biology, marine biology, and they can you know, have multiple uh, semester-based experiences before they hit VCE. And the other part of mastery is the fact that we made a really important decision and indicated to our staff and our community that we don't believe that there's a hierarchy of subjects. So every single subject studied with the same amount of time, the same amount of periods per week. So we use 75-minute periods. So every single uh, subject the students have is three periods of 75. So if you're doing fine art, uh, you're getting three periods a week, the same as in English option, etc. Um, and I must add with English and RE, I mentioned that the, the students will select one of them. We have a, a huge array of different options for the students. Uh, for example, in, in English, students can pick different genres, uh, they can pick different levels, but it's totally their choice. And I suppose the most significant part of my map is that we have broken down the traditional core groups and also the year levels. So we don't have year seven, eight, nine, and 10 anymore. We have our subjects represented by different colors and they are colors that are mapped to our school crest. And therefore there's a real essence that it's it's our program. It belongs to us, they're our colors. So our, our color codings basically goes from sandstone, which is mapped to level seven of the Victorian curriculum. Uh, through to white, which is level eight of the Victorian curriculum, yellow, which is level nine of the Victorian curriculum. Then we have light blue, which is level 10 of the Victorian curriculum, and dark blue, which is level 10 and beyond, which is really VCE level mastery courses. So our mantra is as the color intensifies, so does the learning experience. So what you see in practice is that in the middle of year seven, every single kid can select subjects based on their interests, needs, and likes, uh, and most importantly, at a stage of their development. So we've had some wonderful examples of, of young people who have wanted a traditional curriculum that are able to pick a, a spread of sandstone and white uh, subjects as they you know, start their uh, journey into year seven and eight. Yet we've had other young people who are thriving in particular learning areas and they can dive deep at a very young age. We had a, a, a young person for example, who was really struggling with motivation with school. She was typically labelled as a, you know, a D or an E student in every subject. We have seen such a radical shift in the way young people like this, I'll call her Sally, you know, has approached school and all of a sudden Sally, who's a very gifted dancer, can actually deep dive and do multiple dance courses. And all of a sudden she's bouncing out of bed, wanting to come to school and she sees herself as a, you know, as an advanced dancer and she's touching bases with the other learning domains. But her reason for being for school is really, you know, altered. And, you know, for her, school's become a very different, more meaningful experience. And that's where the purposeful or the P in, in my map, you know, represents. So, Every single student has their own personalized program. There's no two subjects uh, or, or two students will have the same program across the, the journey. Some other benefits of my map is that because we have an elective based sort of a program, our average class sizes are 20 across the school. And you can imagine Matt and Luke being a teacher. For example, if you're, you are an art teacher in a previous existence, you probably had these kids for a small amount of time. So you might've had eight or nine different classes. It's hard to get to know these kids. They're all full of 28, 29, you know, per class. So now the same teachers teaching a maximum of five classes on an average of 20 per class. So you're never teaching any more than 100 kids. So, you know, we've probably halved that teacher's preparation, uh, halved that teacher's need to build relationships with with students, halved their assessments, half their reporting. So you can imagine the delight with a lot of teachers are knowing that their, their teaching experience is going to be a very different one, a, a more meaningful one. And what we're seeing too is that as the students do go through the different year levels, they tend to drift towards areas of interest and, and ability. So if you are a dance teacher, you're actually getting to know the same dance students, you know, across multiple year levels. And again, that's another reason why, you know, we can champion mastery learning. And by the time the kids are getting into VCE, they've got such a significantly different experience uh, with those subjects. It means that the VCE teachers can up the ante uh, and increase the, the level of learning. And you might, you know, might recognise we don't use the term rigour. We don't sort of push that line. It's all about motivation, engagement and passion for deep learning, which we're seeing in our students across the board. I'm looking at Matt's face. There's uh, a bit to unpack there. Matt's just shaking his head. He's uh... there, there is lots to unpack. I've got lots of questions. <laughs> um, 
Shoot. <laughs> Look, do you want to go, Matt? Or uh, I, I guess I'll, I just want to kind of go back a, a step before maybe we unpack some of those questions and, and perhaps just talk about how it happened. You know, you talked about the fact that you did a lot of research and you talked about the kind of self-determination theory and, and drive with Dan Pink. But what did it look like? What was your journey looking like in the in the first two to three years between kind of that, like that first thought that you had um, around we can do better to to the starting point of we're in this, you know, which I think. I think you've said before is maybe around 2019 around there. Yep. So, you know, that two or three year journey, what you did along that journey to take your community with you from a, from a student, from a, from a staff, from a parent lens, there was obviously a lot of work that went into that block. And I think a lot of leaders stumble in, in that space. And so I'm, I'm really interested in unpacking the journey that you went on and how planned that journey was to get to the destination that you got to, or did the destination evolve as you kind of went through? Yeah, I think Luke, when I started in 2016, Kate said to me on, on the first day, uh, she said, question everything you see here. Don't think for one minute that anything here needs to stay there the same. I think in fairness, Kate's walked into, I think, a very, very conservative and traditional school environment. And it's a great school, great history, great tradition. But Kate's very much a you know progressive leader and educator. And she's walked into an environment where I think she felt that she needed some extra support from, from people who could help obviously drive the change and you know I came in a year after Kate and I think in 2016 it was a year I call it my grey year year of grey I just I I come in as my first role as a deputy principal and I come from a very very different environment there was a rule and regulation for everything at the school you know and if you're into that it was absolutely world-class rules but I basically threw every single policy out the window great example was did quite a lot of research on uh, notion of homework and uh, I've I had brought that research to a number of primary schools and my previous school and they had this beautiful homework policy and I just said that it's it's in the bin and I was asked what it's, what, what it's been replaced with and you know I had to say I don't know and that was my year of grey and that was okay I, I just we ha- I had to start somewhere and from there in 2016 you know Kate and I just sat down and go right we've got a wonderful opportunity to, to reframe learning and teaching Kate and the previous principal made a really smart decision that at the end of 2016 that every single you know, leadership position was up for renewal or reshaping so we completely reshaped the way the school was set up and a big part of that was eradicating learning area coordinators you know we felt that you know traditionally they've been very much glorified admin staff we wanted the very best of learning leaders and my own experience at Marcelin you know I how did that land sorry just to interrupt yeah how did that land with your staff you know like when that kind of announcement got made every single leadership role from the top to the bottom is going to be up for grabs I I wasn't there when Kate announced it but I arrived obviously you know in the year that it was all happening I think there was a lot of staff excited with a radical shift in the way the school is being set up and I think a lot of staff also felt very uncomfortable there were there was a significant amount of staff that we did turn over in the first you know two or three years and that's quite normal and we're very philosophical about that I you know and I was the same at Marcel and there was a point in time where I needed to make a decision about uh, whether my values around learning and teaching were congruent with the leadership team and they weren't going to change. So I felt the need to find an environment where it suited my values. And the same happened at Assumption when a number of staff decided that they you know, were a better place to, to move to a perhaps a, a more traditional place of work. But what it did enable us to do you know, with the turnover and with a fresh lens on it is to reinvigorate that learning and teaching space looked like. So what we landed with was eight learning leaders that we felt were the best leaders of learning across the school. There was a little bit of turbulence when we started there that, you know, at the end of the day, people were worried about who was signing their invoices or booking the buses, which really did cement our notion of what the learning area coordinators were doing. And we said to our staff, we're going to give you time. We trust you. You are the experts around learning and teaching. And across six years, we've had, you know, a number of people move in and out of that space. And it's an ever-evolving team. And they've been absolutely brilliant and probably been the backbone to a lot of the changes that we've made you know with my map so f- from 
the start of the learning leaders, we again started to challenge everything that we're doing. We made some really good decisions early on to go to, to be an ungrading school. So we got rid of the old ABCD structures and focused on formative assessment and, you know, obviously assessment for learning. So that took a little bit of time for staff to get their head around, uh, again, a different way of assessing. We worked really hard in reshaping the quality of subjects um, that we did have across the board. And we did introduce significant subject choices prior to the MyMap operating. So that was really a stepping stone towards, you know, MyMap proper. But ever since I got there, Kate had been very uh, open with her desire to, I suppose, have some experiences for our students that were more appropriate for their stage, not age. There was streaming when I got there, which you know, we completely smashed in 2016 and eradicated that practice. Again, based on the research that it was quite harmful for our young people. And I spent two years trying to find a solution to to a stage not age learning experience. We did a lot of looking in other schools. Nothing felt comfortable from my perspective because every school that we saw that had sort of advanced programs or specialist gifted and talented programs were typically pulling kids out of their traditional classes and there was always a a, a compromise or a catch and we didn't feel quite comfortable with it and it wasn't until the end of 2018 that we formed a a station on age working party at at Assumption in amongst a, a number of other initiatives but three months of working with a group of about 15 to 20 staff members we started to Discussing what a potential stage on age learning program may look like, and I think the at the end of the day, the the, the best thing I did was, was spend a, a full day with the timetabler, you know, down at Geelong, Andrew, and we tried to come up with a framework that would basically be practical. And he, by lunchtime that day, he basically said, "Vaughan, I, I can't break this framework," and I came back to school presented it to Kate and Kate and I worked on it a little bit more and we felt that we had a framework uh, for staff and what it basically was is six periods of six subjects uh, across the cycle and a, and a block of four so we had 40 periods across two weeks and everything fitted in in that blocking and we're able to visualize the staff that a student could basically be in six you know subjects and it meant that we can basically lay uh, year levels on top of each other. And it's the same model as what most schools do, Luke and Matt, with VCE or their senior certificates. They, most of them have a, a 10, 11, 12 vertical blocking. We just said that if it worked for 10, 11, 12, why won't it work for 7, 8, 9? So that's what we did. And again, we had a lot of questions early on. You know, staff typically resorted back to old narratives or old questions such as, you know, shouldn't the kids be doing science or shouldn't the kids be doing languages and what if a kid changes their mind? And we're very, very strong in our stance that the research says that students need autonomy and it's a student-centered school and it's a student-centered curriculum. So we're going to let the students decide what they do. And we've been very, very strong in that, that, that manner. And it's meant that we're able to sort of keep this framework with integrity. And it's evolved over a number of years. We had, you know, I think 200 subjects in it in the first year in 2020. And we're we sort of got a little bit of an equilibrium that we're offering about 270 different, you know, school experiences. And that hasn't watered down our VCE. You know, in actual fact, it's grown our VCE option. It hasn't watered down our VET options. In actual fact, it's increased our VET options. So, you know, it's a very much a, a curriculum uh, enabling each young person to, to flourish and thrive, which is really our, our reason for doing it, uh, is, is to have a humane curriculum that meets the students' needs. And, you know, we're very excited with some evolutions within that. And one of them is our you know, huge partnerships with some significant community organisations that we've announced over the last three months. So part of our 270 subjects, we've got a series of high-performance sports subjects. We started with high-performance Aussie rules. We've got a high-performance Aussie rules women's only class, high-performance netball, high-performance cricket, high-performance soccer. And we're very proud of partnered with uh, Liverpool Football Club. We were the first school in the world to write a Liverpool curriculum that the students actually study and engage in as part of their high-performance soccer subject. And we've also got similar partnerships with Essendon Football Club, now Cricket Victoria, Melbourne United and Netball Victoria. So that's just a bit of a taste on, on some of those subjects the kids can and engage with and also being a rural school we've got some you know wonderful agricultural subjects we've got you know from paddock to plate where the students follow vegetables and animals from the the paddock into the 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 food area and onto the plates we run a drone remote pilots license program where young people make and and fly drones as part of their experience. So it's an exciting school to be at. It's very, very busy but our young people love the curriculum and our, our staff have embraced it fully. 
I just want to go back to your design team, your stage not age team, you know, and you sort of described, you know, you're wanting the best leaders of learning and you sort of brought this this, this team of people together. One of the things we talk about, it's really important to have your blockers in the room, the people that say no, or because they really challenge your thinking to really craft the design, you know, of your ecosystem that you, you're sort of trying to create. Talk to me about the, I guess, the, the structure of that team, the people you put in the room, and then potentially the people that you, you sought out deliberately because they knew they'd push back and it would help you refine your ideas. Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. I, um, back at Marcelin, I wrote a curriculum reform paper, I think 2013, as part of a you know, curriculum innovation team. And I remember back then that there was a significant amount of backlash to the paper. I suppose that the main thing was this notion of, of time being taken away from different learning domains. Being a health and PE teacher, there was a bit of a view that the health and PE team were taking over the school and all the kids were going to do was pick sport. And I had a lot of debate. I think at times the narrative got quite personal and... I think it was the best thing in the world for me because I was ready for whatever questions or arguments were going to be thrown my way this time around. We did a lot of work with our staff prior to the official presentation to, to the staff. So not only did we have this stage, not age team, I'd obviously presented it to Kate. Kate and I presented it to leadership. They were able to pepper us with questions and a lot of them were just practical based. How's this going to work? And because we'd done so much work around it, we had answers and we're able to, you know, have open dialogue with them. And really, really importantly too, we, we explained the why. And, and that was a significant thing early on. We were able to, from a philosophical point of view, explain what my map was supposed to do. And there wasn't one staff member that disagreed with the philosophy behind it. And that's been probably the strength of the program. And from the leadership team, we then we've got a strategic leadership team, which is our all of our middle school leaders. Then we presented to the house leaders. Then we presented to the learning leaders. Then we presented it to the personalized learning team. Then we presented it to, to different departments. And I felt like a bit of a foot soldier. You know, I'd be walking into people's offices saying, well, you know, what do you think about this idea? What would my map mean for you as a science department? What sort of subjects would you love to incorporate into this new curriculum? And staff had significant buy-in early on. And you know, I mentioned we started with 200 subjects. That I never dreamt that we would have 200 subjects at the start of my map. I, I thought we might have 30, 40, 50. I, I didn't know. But because the staff themselves had buy-in and they could actually propose the subjects into this framework, that we had a lot of momentum early on. And I know the staff to laugh about it to this day that they knew I was in people's offices because I was drawing all the color codes on people's whiteboards in their offices. So we had sandstone, white, yellow, light blue, dark blue, basically left imprinted on every whiteboard around the school. But I think by the time we presented it to staff between Kate and I, we probably... We'd already had an open dialogue with 70 to 80% of the staff. And I knew that we were on a winner when some of our most traditional thinking teachers went back to their offices after the presentation and said, oh, they've really thought this out, haven't they? And I knew early on that that was going to be a winner. We had a lot of teachers who were also parents on staff. And Kilmore's a you know wonderful community. And I got a sense early on that the discussions in the supermarkets and down the local sports ovals were all very positive about this new initiative around my map and we we had some wonderful buy-in early on i mentioned the why uh, we ran eight parent information evenings one for each house so they we had a couple of hundred people to each of them and parents had the opportunity to probe and question and i suppose some um, fear and anxiety from a small amount of parents who said that we don't want our kids to be guinea pigs we want a traditional curriculum and we're able to say to them that if you want a traditional curriculum you can have that you know and this is what it may look like and we you know had some wonderful little animations that we're able to show parents but we're also able to show parents too that well you know, a traditional curriculum may not be the best thing for your kid and this is what a personalized learning program may look like for your young people and as soon as we saw it in action any fears completely dissipated because i think parents realized that the kids were significantly more happier coming to school and this was all 2019 into 2020 and Luke and Matt I'm not sure whether you, you realize it but Assumption College is in Mitchellshire and I think we were the most locked down and opened up due restriction in the world during the the COVID 2020 year so we had 11 in and outs of you know online 
learning and, and school-based learning. And that was at the start of my map. And to this day, I think people said that, thank God we had my map. We don't know how we would have survived without it. And we had our food studies teacher, our media work teacher, our, our high-performance Aussie rules teacher being able to shift to online learning and deliver these subjects you know, remotely because they were passionate and engaged with it. And they obviously needed to, to make it work. And we had interrupted 2020. We had an interrupted 2021. And we've really seen MyMap come to life last year where we had a full year, you know, back on site. And this year's our fourth year and it just continues to to grow from year in, year out. And a, another initiative that we've introduced the last couple of years, we've invited 80 grade six kids from our next door neighbours, St. Patrick's, where they've actually all come to Assumption anyway. In semester two, grade six kids come over and join a full MyMap subject. So, you know, we have grade sixes right through to year tens scattered across those classes. And being a really true stage nine age learning program, we have 90% of our classes have multiple age groups in them with about 45% have three levels of students, um, you know, in the classes. And I kid you not, Luke and Matt, you would walk into any class and you would not have a clue whether kids are in year seven, eight, nine or 10, because it just seems so natural for the kids to be learning at a stage that's appropriate for them. And the kids don't bat an eyelid. It has never been an issue. I think socially, the kids talk about being incredibly incredibly beneficial, being around people of different ages. They talk about meeting new friends across different year levels. And they talk about being around like-minded students. And what we do see is learning communities in metal. We see learning communities in food. We see learning communities in, in soccer. We see learning communities in fine art. And it's been a wonderful thing as a leader to see this really work in action. If you love what we do here at Ed Leaders, then please support us by supporting our sponsors. And today's episode sponsor is Veracross. Is your school ready for the modern age? Well, we've got good news for you. Veracross, the leading CIS provider for private and independent schools, is now available in Australia. Trusted by hundreds of schools in more than 30 countries around the world, Veracross is the only 100% cloud-based single record database built exclusively for private and independent schools. It's one system for your entire school. Integrations with popular edtech solutions like Schoolbox, Pixevity and Digistorm enable seamless workflows and easy to access information. Plus, their in-country data center improves network speed and privacy so you can rest easy knowing your school's data is secure and protected with Veracross. Make 2023 the year your school moves to the cloud. To learn more about Veracross, visit veracross.com backslash edleaders. That's V-E-R-A-C-R-O-S-S dot com backslash edleaders. And it would mean the world to us if you or your school's director of IT check them out. Now back to today's show. I guess I've got a couple of other questions, but one that just springs to mind quickly is that notion that sometimes the subjects that that staff want to teach are not the same subjects that students want to take. And you kind of obviously mentioned that you got 260 odd subjects now. Can you talk about that process as a school of working out what subjects are going to be offered and how teachers have reacted possibly to their subjects that they thought they thought were going to be great and the reaction from students has been, eh, maybe not so great. Yeah, we have a, an annual process where staff can actually nominate uh, for new subjects. So we're really proud of the fact that every single subject that's put in a proposal, obviously it needs to map to the Victorian curriculum. So there's a stepping stone to every single VC and VET course. So we don't have one-off courses that are fads. We don't have one-off courses because th they're nice to do. Everything's got a meaning behind them. And basically... If the students don't pick it, doesn't run. It's as simple as that. We've had a couple of teachers who have put in the same subject for a couple of years and it hasn't run. And we've just had to go back to them and say, look, it's probably not worth your while going back for a third go. But how about we maybe look at this particular subject from a different angle? And a good example is, is some of our humanity subjects where you know, a lot of our traditional history subjects really hasn't, haven't got huge numbers. But we had a staff member join us a couple of years ago who had a major in archaeology. And we just said to this young teacher that, well, how about designing an archaeology subject that mapped around ancient Greece and Rome, but it's got a theological lens on it. And that's that's an incredibly popular subject that's run now for, for three years. And that's the humanities department never thought to introduce a subject based around that. So that's one example. What we found, Luke and Matt, is that because we've got economies of scale, we're very, very lucky 
to be able to run nearly everything. And a good example, you know, back in the traditional curriculum, if we had seven kids in year 10 want to do, you know, jewellery, metalwork, it's a big decision to run a class of seven. Whereas now we're getting kids from year seven, eight, nine, ten who can pick at different levels of, of you know, jewellery. And it means we're likely to get more numbers. And it just means that we can we can run some smaller classes, we can run some larger classes. Uh, there's been times where we've said that we've, we've only had seven want to do it. Maybe we offer it next semester and we might get the year sevens, might get five or six of them interested and we can run a class of 12 or 13, which is fine. So the economy is, of scale has been really important for us. But the teachers, you know, they're, they're very well in touch with obviously what the young people want to do. But I think big part of it is is that I think the teachers bring their passion and energy to their subjects and I think kids pick up on that and there's been a lot of you know successful examples of staff bringing in some some niche boutique type uh, subjects that perhaps I was a little bit skeptical about whether or not kids will pick them but quite often they will you know one thing I do know is that some young people pick teachers rather than subjects. Whether that's right or wrong, they do. They're humans and, and like those relationships with certain teachers. And, you know, it's worked really well for us. So, you know, the staff have been incredibly brilliant. And I must say in that first year, I had no idea back in 2019 what the curriculum or timetable or budget was going to be in, you know, 2020. So there was a lot of faith put in staff. And we had a lot of teachers saying to us, look, I'm going to write this course for the school. It doesn't matter if I'm not teaching it, but... I really think this subject would be great for the kids and there was so much goodwill from staff and you know, we're very, very lucky that we had such high quality people on board at that point. And Paul, I'm really interested as you sort of just sort of describing that, you know, stage not age and, and you know, I had a question around the developmental and, and social maturity of year sevens being with year tens and I think you sort of described that you've had no issues around that. But to go just a little bit deeper, really you're, you're sort of just talking about personalised learning and actually in personalised learning in action, you know, everyone talks about it. But how have you gone about sort of, I guess, curating that experience for children and ensuring they actually are in the right pathway or they are in the right classes. Is there, I guess, a level of input at the beginning or really you are giving this over to students in terms of agency? We have said all, all along that the students deserve autonomy and it needs to be true autonomy. But we've used the metaphor of journey and we've said to the families that the adults in the young people's lives are the tour guides. So sometimes these tour guides need to push and prod and nudge and encourage and sometimes pull back young people. You know, we one of our biggest fears was that maybe some of our higher achieving kids, you know, saw it as a race and wanted to fly through all these advanced courses and get to VCE really early and sort of done a lot of discussing around enjoy the experience. It's about mastery. It's about deep learning. Enjoy the journey. We're also a little bit worried that some of our lower achieving kids would sort of settle on, you know, sandstone and white and not really progress themselves. And in reality, We've had very little problems. We have a very thorough subject selection process. Must remember, we're probably the only school that's starting pathway discussions from the minute kids start in year seven. So by the time kids get in year nine and 10, they've had four or five goes at, at picking their own subject. So our philosophy is that, well, if you want kids to make good choices, choices, you need to give them practice uh, to make those choices. And sometimes those choices are not going to be great. And that's okay. That's part of the process. You know, we did have some fears early on that kids were in the wrong subjects. And we said, well, no one's going to die. It's, you know, if your kids picked a yellow English instead of a white, well, really the scope and sequence of skills should be the same. Teachers still need to differentiate within that area. What we did say to staff is that don't forget that the research is telling us that there is approximately six years of academic difference between the top 10% of the band and the bottom 10%. What we think is naturally potentially halve that and to be saying to our staff now well okay there's still going to be different kids in your yellow class but it's not six years of difference it might be two might be three so your teaching should be more targeted to those students but still be differentiated and teachers yeah they've really understood that kids who have perhaps as a year seven kid elected to leapfrog a sandstone stone go straight into a white they might have found that subject challenging but they might have done white the following year and stayed at that level and that's okay another beautiful thing with our lack of caveats is that the kids can actually deep dive into areas of their choice and for the first time ever kids could perhaps do two English subjects or two mathematics. It's blown my mind, the amount of families and kids that have said, you know what, I'm really struggling with the maths. I'm behind where I want to be. So I'm going to do two math subjects next semester because I want to I want to be at, at a higher level by the start of next year. Now, the thought of kids, some of the, I suppose, more academically challenged kids picking extra maths in, in English, it, it still blows our mind that kids have done that. So giving kids and families 
trust and responsibility has been awesome. And I know as a parent, I know my kids better than any teacher or leader at at the school. And choice and autonomy and agency in their learning, I think is the most underrated thing, you know, in our children. We talked about doing the research. I'm sure there's no no surprise that 40 to 50% of our kids across the world are disengaged and not motivated by year nine and 10. And my philosophy or theory is that it's because they've given very little choice up until that time. So we've tried to eradicate that. You talked about, you know, maturity levels, Matt, before. We, again, we did quite a bit of research around self-determination theory. And there's another theory called stage environment fit theory without going too deep into the uh, world of academia. But Jacqueline Eccles and colleagues, you know, back in the 1990s, basically did a lot of research to say that adolescent needs are completely being failed by the way that secondary schools are set up. So everything that secondary school students need, relationships, identity, not to be judged publicly. Secondary schools are completely set up away from that. So again, trying to use that research in, in our building up of uh, our curriculum. And there's a significant amount of research that says that students in age-based programs are more likely to be bullied they're more likely to bully, they're more likely to form silos of, of friendships and exclude others. And a lot of research around psychological development says that it is completely natural and normal for people to learn from people that are slightly older than them. And in the school, secondary school, we take that away from young people. So the, the evidence is significant across the world. And I, I'm, I'm very much a believer in you know what's normal and natural. And again, the, the research says it is not normal or natural to isolate people based on their age. And the only places that's done around the world is typically at schools and sports teams. Um, you look at everything else that we're doing as a society, it's diverse, multiple ages, and again, having that lens in the way that we set up the school has been very meaningful and powerful for us. You've talked there a lot about the research that you've done kind of throughout the, the journey that you've been on. I'm interested in if there's been other people like the North Stars, if you will, who have kind of been there kind of supporting you, not necessarily within your school context, but potentially just outside kind of like your traditional community. Kate and I, you know, we've been very much abreast of a lot of, you know, I suppose forward thinkers in the world of education. I suppose early on, we, we basically did a lot of the grunt work ourselves. Once the MyMap's been up and running, we've, you know, we've reached out to a, a couple of organisations and, you know, one of them's been Future Schools Australia, who I know both Matt and Luke, you guys have interviewed Peter Hutton and aware of their work. Being around other people with a similar sort of mindset has been really important for us. So we've done a lot of MyMap tools at Assumption. So we've had a lot of people from different schools across the country come and visit us and engaging in, in discussions about what their schools look like has been really powerful for us. We've reached out to an organisation called the Human Restoration Project, which it's an American-based organisation that basically look at progressive education through a humanistic lens. So we've had some really good discussions and involvement with Human Restoration Project. But other than those you know, two organisations, we, we really haven't, haven't had a lot of discussion a- outside of our little bubble. Uh, at Kilmore, which is part of the reason why we're really keen to talk to people like you guys, is to, I suppose, spread the word that people on the ground in schools have the capacity to do some wonderful things. And you know, I believe the future of education is from people who are living in schools and understanding that the way that the current school structure is set up is is really not the best way for our young people to thrive. And I think it's really important that we challenge, you know, the profession and challenge the way schools are set up and um, also to showcase that it is possible to do things incredibly different. We're really proud of the fact that We've stuck to the Victorian curriculum. We've honoured the traditional learning subjects, but we've completely challenged the, the, the notion of an age-based school experience. And our school looks and feels so different, yet it meets all the bureaucratic requirements and ticks all the boxes of the politicians and, and others who come in and love to audit and you know, make schools accountable. So you know, that's been, I suppose, an important aspect of our, our, our journey. And Vaughan, really, you know, as, you, as you've sort of described, you know, what you're really doing is saying in education, we're so conditioned by our silo and you've got to, you've got to think differently. You've got to think outside the box, but you're, you're changing the system from the inside out. And we often just feel defeated that we can't change the system from the inside out. We've got to do it from the outside in. And so I think the My Map is such a, an interesting exemplar of how to shift systems. And, and I guess sort of looking outwards and I guess sharing um, your vision What advice would you have to leaders who are thinking about or trying to change the system? Be brave. Know your stuff. It's it's important, obviously, that 
you don't let your community down by making poor decisions. And a classic example is that most schools of visitors say, well, how did you get away with this? Like it's, you somehow won a game. How come your kids don't have to do languages? And you know, we did a lot of research around the requirements of Victorian schools. And to let your li- li- listeners know that we are very lucky in Victoria, that the Victorian curriculum is written to stages, not ages. And there is some really good support material that the Victorian government have provided. And the whole essence of the ideology in Victoria is that they really want, you know, year seven to be breadth and, and balance and year nine and 10 to be pathways in choice. The facts are that there's no advice on how schools can do that. But we, we've read all the literature. It's very, very clear that in Victoria, for schools to be registered, that schools have to offer all subjects. And we say, well, we offer all subjects and more, but there's no requirements that students have to study every single subject. And that's the one thing that we've been really strong on. I think a lot of schools perhaps a little bit scared of that and they put in rules where the kids have to study science up to year nine or languages up to year 10 or they have to do a humanities or technology. But because of our students in our year seven semester one program, Quare, they do get exposed to every single you know, learning domain and Victorian curriculum. We report against that and then from there on, whatever students want to delve deep into, they do. We've been Absolutely amazed in the breadth of subjects kids have picked naturally. Again, there was a bit of a fear that kids might deep dive and do all of one learning domain. The kids have so many electives to pick from that if you wanted to do every PE one, you'd run out of choices. You'd have to go and pick some other ones. So we've seen on average students are probably doing seven you know, learning domains, maybe eight out of the nine across their journey. And what our kids are telling us, that one subject or two subjects where kids just perhaps hate doing, have never enjoyed it. We've just taken that off the table for our, for our kids. And virtually every adult I speak to, they probably look back at their own school experience and they might have said that I hated PE with a passion when I was at school and I hated coming to school when I had to do it or with a, whatever subject it is. Whereas now we've taken that off the table for the kids. And again, it's all about them and their choices and, and about their positive experiences. And just continuing that a little bit further, you're three or four years now into this journey. What are the students actually saying about the program now? Like, I know you've given your your view of it, but you know, like, how's it been for students? What are the what are the enrollment numbers like? You know, how how has the student kind of uh, shifted in in that time? I'll start with the enrollments just really quickly. Luke, was it three years ago? I think our enrollments were at. 1280. I think we're very close to 1500. And there's a few reasons for that. We do have some growth through the northern corridors of, of Victoria, but the, all of the staff that are doing enrollment interviews basically saying that the word's out that Assumption's offering all these options for kids. And we're getting kids from schools that we never dreamt that we'd be getting from. And it's largely because of our MyMap curriculum. Our kids uh, themselves, we have a team of MyMap ambassadors who basically talk to school groups and, and teachers and leaders when they come and visit the college and we don't script it it's warts and all they're up there at the front and and talk about their experiences and it's the best thing ever to hear young people say to teachers that I used to dislike school or I used to dislike these subjects now I love it because I can do a b c d and the kids are very open uh, and honest about the schools they like the fact that they're working with students across different year levels they like the fact that they can pick subjects and we had one young person last year brutally honest in a city group of teachers. Before my map, I didn't want to come to school. I hated getting out of bed. Now, even if I'm sick, I'm wanting to come to school and my mum's trying to keep me home and I don't want to stay home. I want to go to school. So the stories that are being told, overwhelmingly positive. I can honestly say we've never had one parent or kid say, this is rubbish. This doesn't suit our child. And even our, our most gifted kids, for the first time ever, they're not stuck in a year seven, eight, nine. 10 traditional classes. They're accelerating through at a level that they can uh, work at. We've even got a year nine kid starting a VC maths this year because that's where they're at. So the stories that have been told are overwhelmingly positive. I'm a big believer that schools and society are going down this auditing route where anything quantitative is valued. For me, the, the qualitative data that we're getting through rich stories and feedback from parents and kids is incredibly rich. So the stories we're hearing are really positive and we know and we're very confident that, you know, the results and other things are just going to naturally happen without us even talking about it or focusing on it. But for us, it's not the main aim. The main aim is to to help promote a, a love of learning via motivation and engagement. 
And it's great to hear just the, the power of story, these vignettes of, of students and being empowered and actually having autonomy. And they speak, and when they speak to other people, they speak from the heart. And it's that authenticity that's just so important. So for as we sort of head towards the, the end, we, we always love to, to ask for sort of personal reflections and look to the future. As my map program continues to, to develop, what do you think it's going to look like in the next five years? What are your hopes and aspirations for it? I hope that it still exists. I think one of my fears and one of our fears at Assumption is that a lot of schools have programs or initiatives that only survive for a short amount of time. And what our dreams are is that it's going to be so embedded into the framework of the school that it would be near impossible for anyone to walk in and turn this thing back. We've had some of our some of our teachers say to us, I could not never imagine uh, going back to a traditional age-based you know, structure. This just works so well. So our dream is that the buy-in and ownership from the entire community is so strong that it's a sustainable framework moving forward. And from a bigger picture perspective, we would love this to be a model for other schools moving forward. And I must say, we were very much inspired by the work of Peter Hutton with his work at Templestowe College, who really was the pioneer around stage on age learning. Peter jokingly sort of says that Assumption's got a Templestowe Secondary College on steroids uh, curriculum. Yeah, we are lucky. We've got better resources, more space. Obviously, being a low-fee-paying private school, we've got more money to be able to have these programs. So we feel very grateful that we're in a position to do it. There are some other schools that are looking at embedding similar programs and a call-out to Salesian College. Summary, who in 2024 will be basically having the same structure across the 7 to 10. And there's some other schools that are pinching or borrowing ideas, which is really what we did from other, from a range of different schools. So Matt and Luke, our dream is that other schools can pick the best bits out of my map and promote choice and autonomy. Our biggest fear is that policymakers and bureaucrats start bringing in rules that hinder what we're trying to achieve and sends shivers down my spine whenever I hear politicians or a traditionalist talk about back to basics and more literacy and numeracy. It could really kill progressive ideas in schools like ours. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That brings uh, to my favourite segment of the show, the six in 60 seconds. One word or idea or, or thought when it comes to the answer. You ready to go? All good, Luke. All right, here we go. One educational narrative that's been underrated or overrated in the past decade. Oh, underrated is student agency and voice, and overrated is probably most things around technology. <laughs> the most underrated role in a school? Oh, it's got to be the daily organiser. Easy. The most interesting professional development you've ever done? To be honest, it's probably my doctoral studies that I'm doing at the moment. Being able to deep dive into a passion around motivation and engagement is certainly the best thing I've done. That doesn't surprise me listening to you today. If you could change one rule or one thing in education more broadly, what would it be? I'd get rid of the rules. In the bin, as you said earlier. Let school start again. In the bin. Yep. Put the rules in the bin. Yep. What does student success look like for you? Seeing young people flourish in whatever area of passion they want to flourish in. And lastly, one book worth reading. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you two. I reckon you'd have a few actually, but it it's might be hard for you. All right, that's it. <laughs> Throw out the rules. Yeah, break the rules. There we go. One's Leadership of the New Science by Margaret Wheatley. Absolutely brilliant book around complexity and chaos theory and change management. Highly recommended. And really anything from Nassim Taleb, uh, but one book in particular called Anti-Fragile really did inspire a lot of my ideas around change leadership and life in general. All right. That brings an end to our show for today. I actually feel like that's gone super quickly and we could easily do a part two, three, and four. But uh, for the audience out there, I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Vaughn today. Matt, closing comments. I know you need to keep this brief, buddy, because I know that you're just want to going to go to town here. Closing comments. I know you've got them. Look, we've even just this week talking a lot about autonomy agency process over product, collaboration, stage not age, so topical at the moment in the work that I'm doing. But for me, what's really stood out is this is an exemplar, uh, exemplar, sorry, of student-centered learning. You know, we talk about it, we talk about human-centered approaches, we talk about personalized learning, but here we have it in action. It's not just something that we talk about and dream of. So thank you so much, Vaughn. Thank you for being so generous and, and sharing the work that you're doing assumption it is inspiring and i can't wait to get back to work to to share your journey my colleagues and see if we can uh, sort of nudge the system a little bit more 
Well, we're very open to hosting school tools. So reach out to us at, at Assumption and we'll do some structured tools and some unstructured tools. So anyone wanting to visit from anywhere around the country would be more than welcome. And it would certainly be worth your while to see and meet our young people. Certainly are our best ambassadors. I'm thinking an Ed Leaders meetup at Assumption College, Matt. What do you think about that? Yep, let's do it. Yep, lock it in. Sounds great. All right. Now, for me, I mean, there's just there's just so much to love about today's story. You know, the journey you've been on as a school, you know, the matching that with the journey the students are going on, that nature of why are we doing this? It's about students and students being at the center of what we're trying to achieve. I love that notion that there's no hierarchy of your subjects, which you described, the amount of choice that students have. I can't even imagine being a 15-year-old and having a choice of a couple of hundred subjects. What, what an amazing outcome for students to have that choice. The other thing I really love is that this kind of whole thing is has not been really an expensive exercise. It's not a you know a super expensive program that you've bought off the shelf from somewhere. It's not cost the school millions of dollars more to implement. Like you've been able to use your existing resources and just structure it in a different way to achieve a massively different outcome. And I, and I think that's to be admired and considered by schools around the country that not everything costs a lot when it comes to innovation. And, and lastly, I just love the dream being an exemplar that, that goes further and goes beyond. And like Matt said, I, you know, I'm super keen to take this back today to my school and I help, and I hope the audience out there takes what they're hearing today and, and kind of runs with it and it you know, kind of helps with that movement towards better outcomes for students, which is why we're all here. So Vaughan, look, thank you again for giving up your time to share with our audience today about your journey and about, about the school's journey. For the audience out there, if they want to connect with you, where's the best place to do that? And any closing comments from yourself certainly via email vaughan.cleary at assumption.vic.edu.au also on on twitter so happy for or, and LinkedIn anyone to reach out to me but just closing comments thanks matt and luke for giving teachers and leaders like myself a platform to talk uh, about uh, school experiences very much a, a pragmatist and love just doing what needs to be done for the, the the students and having people like yourself you know helping shed share the word is is so vital in education so thank you so much and I've enjoyed our discussion today and look forward to meeting some of your listeners hopefully on site at Kilmore. Absolutely. Thank you, Vaughan. Now, remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and don't forget to share the love and tell a few of your colleagues or maybe the person sitting next to you that they should be listening to Ed Leaders and especially this episode with Vaughan if they are a future-focused educator. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you're not signed up to the Ed Leaders newsletter, you are missing out. We publish a new issue every two weeks and it's jam-packed with nuggets to level up your school leadership game. So check out edleaders.com.au for more details. Thanks again to our sponsors of today's show, and we'd be very, very grateful if you could spend a few minutes going to their website and checking them out as they support us to make this professional learning as best it can be and free for you, our audience. Remember, you can connect with Ed Leaders and both of us on LinkedIn, where we'll keep you up to date with all the latest of what we're up to. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. Go well.